0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Finding Treatment Synergy in CLL, Expert Consults on Advances with Targeted and Cellular Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash AEQ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning and welcome to the session on CLL, Finding Treatment Synergy in CLL. My name is Maziar Shadman. I'm uh, from Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Peter Rydell from University of Chicago. Looking at the CLL treatment landscape and the changes that we have witnessed in the past few years, we have moved completely from chemoimmunotherapy regimens in the frontline setting and in the relapse setting to using novel targeted drugs We now have multiple clinical trials in the first line and also in the relapse setting that have shown that targeted drugs, including BTK inhibitors and venetoplax-based therapies, are superior to chemoimmunotherapies for different important clinical outcomes, mainly progression-free survival. So if you put these drugs in different categories, of course, Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors are one of the most important classes, with ibrutinib being the first drug in this class And as I mentioned, in multiple clinical trials in different settings, uh, this drug, as monotherapy or in combination with CD20 antibody rituximab, has been shown to be superior to our uh, commonly used chemoimmunotherapy regimens. And then we started having access to next-generation BTK inhibitors, what we call second-generation, acalabrutinib and zanabrutinib, have the same mechanism of action like ibrutinib, but more selective for BTK, and for this reason, they usually come with a better safety profile. And all these three drugs are approved by the FDA for treatment of CLL in basically all lines of therapy. brutinib is a non-covalent BTK inhibitor, or as we may call it, a third-generation BTK inhibitor. The drug is currently not approved for CLL, and we recently saw the approval coming for the mantle cell lymphoma. Of course, the approval for CLL may happen in future or near future, there are also ongoing studies in the CLL area, including randomized studies. Venetoclax is currently the only drug from the BCL-2 inhibitor class, and the drug is also approved for CLL treatment uh, as monotherapy or in combination with anti-CD20 antibodies, either obinotizumab in the frontline setting or rituximab in the relapse setting. And PI3 kinase inhibitors are still available as an option for Patients with relapsed CLL, both idelalisib and duvelisib are currently available for use. We know about the toxicity profile and concerns about infections and range of autoimmune conditions that come with PI3 kinase inhibitors. The studies that led to the approval of these two drugs were done in patients who were not exposed to BTK inhibitors or venetoclax. And for that reason, and despite the fact that we consider the third-line therapy, there's minimal or no data to show their efficacy in the setting that is most relevant these days, which are patients who receive BTK inhibitors and venetoclax. We should also note that despite all the advancements and uh, the the literature that we have been uh, exposed to in the past decade, there is a wide gap between what we know and what is being done in uh, practice. And we see that in a daily basis in in a clinic, but the, the two studies that are shown here basically showed that in practice and in the community setting, especially, and and I would say even in the academic setting sometimes, we don't have all the information that we need to have before starting treatment and before making a decision about starting treatment. For example, the informed CLL registry, which uh, included uh, almost 1,500 patients, showed that one-third of patients with deletion 17p or a mutated p53 gene did not receive what did not receive what is recommended by the NCCN guidelines, and basically they did not uh, get the appropriate therapy for their disease. As we will discuss, the treatment decisions for this patient population has to be specifically considered. Another real-world study of the US treatment patterns in CLL with uh, more than 5,200 patients showed that, again, despite all the clinical trials that have shown superiority of novel agents over chemotherapy, Almost half of the patients receive either chemotherapy, chemoimmunotherapy, or just monoclonal CD20 antibody for treatment of CLL. So there's absolutely room and uh, need for for, uh, more uh, education and getting the knowledge closer to what what happens in practice. So during this session, we will um, plan to uh, look at some of the data and recommendations regarding specifically focused on high-risk CLL defined by uh, having abnormality in the p53 gene, and also talk about targeted drugs and, and uh, cellular therapy, specifically CAR-T therapy for CLL. So we start with the case, and our case is a gentleman who is 72, and they present with uh, symptomatic uh, uh, CLL, and they have not previously received treatment, so somebody who meets the indication for treatment, as we know, even now with the even with all the novel drugs that we have, we don't necessarily offer treatment at the time of diagnosis, regardless of the cytogenetic risk. So the patients do need to meet the criteria for treatment, and this patient does and Deciding about the treatment strategy, there are patient factors, there are disease factors, and sometimes there are social factors that we consider. For example, in this patient, an important comorbidity is hypertension. Patient otherwise has a good performance status. The molecular information are critical to make clinical decision. This patient has a confirmed deletion in uh, the 17P area. That's That's the location of the gene P53. And also, the mutational status for IGHV is important to know, and for this patient, patient has an unmutated IGHV gene. So high-risk features from the cytogenetic standpoint and a comorbidity that is hypertension. So going back to the, one of the questions that we asked, and the, the two main classes for CLL are BTK inhibitors and bcl 2 inhibitor, uh, venetoclax is the, the only drug in this category for now, and we in the absence of any head-to-head clinical trial that has shown superiority of either approach, we basically have discussions in the clinic and consider many factors to, to come up with a decision. In patients with DEL17P abnormality, I would, I would just make it more general, and with aberrant P53G, either deleted or mutated. We, again, we don't have a head-to-head trial, but we do have evidence from a number of uh, studies that give us a really good understanding of the median progression-free survival on ibrutinib, on xanobrutinib, and on ikelabrutinib. And we also have data with venetoclax-based therapy. And in the upcoming slides, we will review some of the data. But in general, it seems that continuous therapy with BTK inhibitor provides a PFS curve that looks, by eye, superior to what we see with venetoclax-based therapy. And I should add that Another factor that's listed here and is also important, and uh, in in my opinion it's becoming even more important with this recent data that we're observing, is the mutational status of IGHV. In the study that was done with venetoplax and obinutuzumab in frontline setting, the German CLL14 study, there's a clear separation of the curves when you look at the mutational status of IGHV. It wasn't clear if that's because of the high correlation of that finding with DEL17P, so uh, the, at the EHA meeting last year when they controlled for everything, sounds like, it sounded like the IGHV mutational status was not independently predictive of the outcome, but at ASH, we had some data from another uh, German group study, CLL13, and in patients without DEL17P, and uh, it seemed that one of the independent predictors of outcome was the unmutated status of IGHV. So, I know that some CLL experts have started using that information in deciding uh, their treatment and going with BTK inhibitors versus venetoclax-based therapy. But that's something that is less established as DEL17P as a, as a decision factor. And then the question is, okay, if we, if we agree that BTK inhibitors are the best choice, uh, we have many of them. We have at least, we have three actually FDA approved as of uh, uh, now. And how do we select between ibrutinib, akel and to make it uh, more practical between first and second generation. So I grew it versus the two second generations. So, kind of very quickly looking at what's in the NCCN guidelines in terms of the treatment options or preferred recommendations for, first on the top you have uh, recommendations for patients without an abnormal P53 uh, gene, meaning that they have a functional P53 gene. So these are um, the, the options include acalabrutinib with or without obinutuzumab. We will show that this is based on the Elevate TN, TN study, treatment naive, which was a three-arm study comparing acalabrutinib with acalabrutinib and obinutuzumab. And the control arm was corambucil and obinutuzumab. And based on that study, we have a Category 1 recommendations for a acalab- uh, recommendation for acalabrutinib with the option of giving obinutuzumab. We also have venetoclax and obinutuzumab. That's based on the CLL14 study that I briefly mentioned. And then xanobrutinib more recently, based on the Sequoia data, is approved and has received a category one recommendation. The other recommended uh, options and kind of limited to the BTKI-based regimens for this talk is ibrutinib. And the reason why it's not one of the preferred regimens is, as we will show is based on the safety data that, you know, in two head-to-head trials uh, kind of, we, we know that the two uh, drugs, acalabrutinib and Zanuar, uh better tolerated with a better safety profile. You don't see any chemoimmunotherapy options, even in patients who have a functional and normal p53 gene. And moving to the next box, and we're focusing now on patients with DEL17P uh, or p53 mutation, and it's pretty much the same as, as the the prior box, we don't see the category ones mainly because there's no randomized study specific to those uh, to that subgroup. But acalabrutinib with or without obinutuzumab, xanabrutinib monotherapy, or for fixed duration therapy, venetoclaxin combination with obinutuzumab are your options. And then ibrutinib is one of the other recommended treatment uh, options. Kind of quickly looking at the long fo- long-term follow-up from some of the randomized studies in this setting. The Alliance study was a head-to-head three-arm, actually, study comparing ibrutinib in one arm to ibrutinib and rituximab, and the third arm was the control arm of bendamustine rituximab. This was the study that did include some DEL17P uh, patients, and the longest follow-up we have, we have uh, uh, shows a 48-month PFS of 76% uh, versus what uh, you see with bendamustine rituximab, which is 47%. And this study established that ibrutinib-based therapy is superior to bendamustine rituximab. It also uh, showed that there's no benefit of adding rituximab to ibrutinib. The second study is the Elevate, Elevate-TN study, which I briefly mentioned. Again, a three-arm study, acalabrutinib monotherapy, second-arm ibr- Acalabrutinib and uh, obinutuzumab, and then uh, Corambacil and obinutuzumab for the control arm. The 60 month PFS for uh, acalabrutinib in combination with uh was um, 60 so to 60 month PFS, um, um. For monotherapy with acalabrutinib, was 72%, and for combination of acalabrutinib and obinutuzumab was 84%, which both arms were superior to corambosal and obinutuzumab. So I should mention that when you look at the data, there seems to be some separation in the PFS curves when when you look at the acalabrutinib plus obinutuzumab versus acalabrutinib monotherapy, which created some confusion because with ibrutinib, we decided that adding rituximab does not help, and this study showed that maybe obinutizumab helps a little bit. I should say that because our focus is 17P deleted population, actually the subgroup that we did not see any improvement in PFS, even by addition of obinutizumab, is actually the DEL17P population. So um, I don't think many of us are using a calabrutinib and obinutizumab as the standard or our kind of um, uh, to-go regimen, but in selected patients, adding an anti-CD20 antibody is uh, necessary, and we, we use this data for that purpose. And the Sequoia data was a randomized study comparing xanobrutinib to bendamustin and rituximab, and these are patients who did not have DEL17P, and with, you have a 24-month PFS of 86% with zanubrutinib compared to 70% with bendamustin and rituximab, and this was the study that led to the approval of um, uh, xanobrutinib in the first-line setting. Now let's look at uh, a specific population with an abnormal P53 gene, either deletion or mutation. With ibrutinib, uh, this is a study by Dr. John Allen and colleagues, and they looked at the pooled analysis of, uh, four, uh, of, from four clinical trials, and they specifically looked at patients with DEL17P or P53 mutation. And as you see here, the median PFS is not reached, and the PFS at four years was 79%, with an overall survival of 88% which is really impressive knowing that in the pre-novel agent era, and when we had chemoimmunotherapy, the median PFS with the best chemotherapy combination that we had, which was FCR, was less than uh, a year. And here we have uh, such a great uh, uh, PFS and OS with, with BTK inhibitors. As I mentioned, the subgroup of uh, patients on ELVE-TN study also had abnormal uh, P53 gene, and here it may be a little bit difficult to, uh, actually it's not. So looking at patients with DEL17P, uh, the median, P, the, the PFS is uh, in favor of acalabrutinib-containing regimens, and the median PFS is not reached in any of the acalabrutinib-containing uh, arms. So um, again, another evidence that BTK inhibitors in the frontline setting are uh, effective, and we will put these curves next to what we have from venetoclax in the upcoming slide. And this is from the Sequoia study, the cohort two of the Sequoia study. You remember, Sequoia study was the cohort one was the randomized part of zanubrutinib versus bendamocin and rituximab. But in Sequoia, if patients had DEL17P, they would get zanubrutinib as monotherapy. And this is what's published uh, from that cohort with median so, uh, PFS of uh, the two-year PFS of uh, 89%. So shorter follow-up with zanubrutinib compared to ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. But in general, this study, for example, enrolled more than 100 patients for just, just the DEL17P cohort. And overall, I think it's clear that BTK inhibitors are extremely effective in patients with DEL17P abnormality. Now, so on the left, you see the ibrutinib care from the, the Dr. Allen's study that I mentioned. And on the right side, the Kaplan-Meier curves from the CLL-14, and if you pay attention to the arrow, these are patients who received venetoclax and obinutuzumab and had an abnormal P53 gene. Again, the practice of comparing studies, uh, uh, kind of the different studies in on, on one slide may not be the best practice, but I think you don't need to be a statistician to see that there is a median for that curve, venetoclax curve, and uh, definitely the relapses continue to happen. And this is one of the reasons that some and, uh, and you know, the, the, for, for, I would say, many CLL physicians and investigators, BTK inhibitors are preferred choice for patients with abnormal P53 gene in the first-line setting. Now, I would just add that there may be patients, you know, there may be access issues or uh, inability to take BTK inhibitors because of some absolute contraindications, which is not very common. It's not wrong to use venetoclax and abinitizumab, and as you saw, it was listed on the NCCN guidelines, but then there should be discussions about the the decision about continuing therapy at the end of defined one year and whether or not using MRD in that setting to make a decision, but that that would be a topic that we can discuss if there is interest during the Q&A. How about combination therapy? The field is moving towards adding our two Effective classes uh, combining them together, they have different uh, mechanisms of action. You know, with BTK inhibitors, you block the proliferation. With venetoclax, you induce apoptosis, and it makes a lot of sense to combine them for, for many reasons. And you know, what if we can achieve a complete response with undetectable MRD? And you know maybe those remissions are, are lasting for a long time, and maybe at some point we can claim a functional cure so. You see at every year at the, at the ASH meeting and other meetings, there are uh, different follow-up uh, results from many combination studies. So this is one example. Captivate is a study that uh, looked at the combination of ibrutinib and venetoclax and uh, had, had two different uh, cohorts, a fixed-duration cohort, which is shown here. And there was a MRD cohort. And in fixed-duration, everybody stopped treatment at the end of the defined period of combination therapy in the MRD. Cohort at the end based on their MRD status, patients were randomized. Uh, But I mean, really, the point is that when you combine these drugs together, you see uh, effectiveness and very high rates of complete response and also undetectable MRD rate at the at the bone marrow level or in the peripheral blood. And more importantly, if you look at the right side and the, the gray area indicates the time on active treatment and the the. The rest of it would be the off treatment. And you see those curves are holding very um, kind of, um, well, you see that, you know, the follow-up is not very long, but relapses are rare. And, you know, an indication that a fixed-duration therapy that's all oral and does not include any infusion, even a monoclonal antibody, could be effective and uh, used in selected patients, um. Based on uh, the GLOW study, which was another study co- comparing the combination with obinotizumab and coriambucil, the combination is now approved uh, to, to for in Europe for CLL. We don't have the approval in the U.S., but as I said, the field is moving towards uh, combination therapy. It's not clear if we need uh, three drugs. Do we really need to have a monoclonal antibody added to BTK inhibitor or, and venetoclax? We don't know that, but... Uh, This is another example uh, from the Dana-Farber group uh, with the AVO regimen. This is a calabrutinib in combination with venetoclax and obinutuzumab. At the most recent meeting, uh, American Society of Hematology meeting, they presented their updated results. Uh, The initial study that they did, and they included patients with all cytogenetic risk factors, but they expanded the study later to include more patients who had DEL17P abnormality or P53 mutation. And um, so the initial 37 patients, I think, and then they added 31 more patients. And you see here, they presented the 68 patient data. And really the point being that these are high risk patients, 60% had an aberrant P53 gene. And you see a quarter of patients had complex karyotype. And also 75% 75% of unmutated IGHV. So this is as risky as you can get in terms of the cytogenetic factors. And, you know, the treatment uh, regimen is one of, one of the challenges of looking at this combination of studies is they're very different in their design and the time points of looking at MRD and decisions based on MRD. But in general, since we're talking about this study, the patients have started with acalabrutinib, and after one cycle they received obinutizumab for a total of six cycles, and venetoclax was added at the beginning of cycle four. After 15 cycles, they looked at the MRD. Patients who were MRD-negative could stop treatment. MRD-positive patients would continue for nine additional cycles, and after nine, again, MRD-negative patients could stop. MRD-positives could continue or did continue. But really, the point here is that if you pay attention, for example, to... the response by IWCLL, the blue, the, the blue bars, the second one is focusing on P53 abnormal patient and a CR rate of 52%. And uh, again, yeah, other than CR, the PR is uh, it's very close to the 100%. Also, the MRD status uh, in, in peripheral blood and in the bone marrow as shown uh, are, are both shown in the P53 patients in the... Uh, Pre-fall blood, there is an MRD negativity rate of close to eighty percent and sixty percent um, in the marrow. So extremely effective and complete remissions with undetectable MRDs. Uh, you know this is a single-arm study. It's always important to compare uh, our basically proposed experimental treatment with what's established. So the German CLL study group is starting or. Um, I think it will start it. I don't, I don't believe it started uh, to enroll. But looking at specifically at patients with DEL17P or P53 abnormality, and they're planning for this randomized trial, looking at AVO versus obinotizumab and venetoclax. And I think this will be a very important study for this specific subgroup. So looking at triplet versus the, the ven-obinotizumab, which is already established for Frontline CLL and, you know, there are other studies that are looking at the AV and AV combination. In the US, we have the MAGIC trial, which compares acalabrutinib and venetoclax versus uh, venetoclax and obinutuzumab, And there's Amplify, which is a registration study looking at AV versus AVO versus chemoimmunotherapy. So we will get a lot of information in the near future about that combination. Xanabrutinib is our other next-generation, second-generation BTK inhibitor. And here we see that the Sequoia study um, had a combination cohort of xanabrutinib plus venetoclax. And the prior ASH meeting, we had some results from that cohort. Um, And, you know, again, effective and uh, and, uh, high uh, response rate and undetectable MRD rate. Now, where is the future of Xanobrutinibin in combination of BCL-2 inhibitor is a little bit unclear because they uh, there may be other BCL-2 inhibitors that they may be interested in combining xanobrutinib with. But in general, the principle is that BTK inhibitors and BCL-2 inhibitors could be combined and, combined and they're very effective. So we talked about the selectivity of akala and Xanu for BTK and uh, by not impacting other kinases, uh, you know, we expect a better safety profile. And that has been shown initially in intolerant studies. Two studies with acalabrutinib showed that you could safely use acalabrutinib in patients who had side effects from ibrutinib. We have similar data from zanabrutinib that patients who were intolerant to ibrutinib could take zanabrutinib and most of the patients did not have recurrence of their adverse events. And uh, so, but in head-to-head trials, we also saw that in, in a more clear way Elevate RR was a re- study in the relapse setting that compared ibrutinib to acalabrutinib. In this study, only patients with DEL17P and 11Q deletion were, or were uh, enrolled. And the primary endpoint of the study was non-inferiority of progression-free survival, which was reached. So acalabrutinib is not inferior to ibrutinib for efficacy. But more importantly, for adverse events, you see that there is a difference in terms of uh, uh, atrial fibrillation rate, for example, 9.4 versus 16% in favor of acalabrutinib. And in general, if you look at the time uh, to onset and discontinuation rate and uh, patient, even in patients with a prior history of AFib and flutter, which are high-risk subgroup for cardiac complications from BTK inhibitors, you see that the rate is uh, significantly lower with acalabrutinib compared to ibrutinib. So you have the cumulative incidence curves for atrial fibrillation on the left. And more importantly, hypertension is also less, um, uh, the incidence is lower with acalabrutinib. Hypertension is one of the important adverse events from the BTK inhibitors as a class and one of those uh, side effects that unlike others can increase in rate over time. So there is more focus recently on hypertension as an adverse event. And here you see that the uh, incidence of hypertension is lower. Um, as we look at the Alpine trial in a second, this difference was not observed when xanobrutinib was compared to uh, ibrutinib. And this is the Alpine study. Alpine study is also at the head to head trial of xanobrutinib versus ibrutinib in the relapse setting. The difference is that the, the study included all comers, so it was not limited to 11Q or DEL17P. And there was a significant uh, improvement in, or uh, the rate of atrial fibrillation and a flutter was lower. In xanabrutinib treated patients compared to ibrutinib, and 5.2% for zanabrutinib versus 13.3% for ibrutinib. As I mentioned, the hypertension rate was not different, and Alpine also showed superiority of PFS uh, in all and also DEL 17P. But here, again, the focus on cardiovascular endpoints uh, are shown here, and again, lower rate of AFib and AFLOTR we saw, but that's related to cardiac events. and Serious adverse events related to cardiac uh, uh, issues were significantly lower with xanobrutinib compared to (laughs) igrutinib. So we have great drugs, and many of them, but in fact, we really have two classes. What happens after patients uh, are exposed to both uh, BTK inhibitors, the covalent BTK inhibitors, and and venetoclax. And what if those drugs fail the patient? And failure could be defined by having progressive disease or having adverse events that are not uh, after adjustments and switching to a second generation BTK inhibitors. I would say these days it's a rare uh, case that you have a patient that you can't treat them with a second generation BTK inhibitors. But in general, let's say that you have a patient who doesn't have the BCL2 inhibitor and a covalent BTKI as an option. The the outcome is poor in those patients. Unfortunately, even now, as I mentioned, PI3 kinase inhibitors are there, but they're really not studied in this setting, and their side effect profile is uh, extremely concerning. You know, as we know in follicular lymphoma, these drugs were all pulled off the market because of safety concerns and lack of head to head trials. In CLL, we still have them, but not a reliable class in the in the post BTKI and post venetoclax setting. And you know, we need. generate better quality data and what exactly is the benchmark in this setting. But this is one example based on the electronic medical records that shows you that if you have patients like that and, you know, when you look, use the medical uh, records, you have to kind of come up with uh, definitions of failure. But basically the time to next drop failure or, or death, if you look at the median, is in the range of less than six months. So absolutely an unmet need. And, um, you know, we have options still from the targeted drugs. And Dr. Rydell will talk about cell therapy as another important option. But very, very quickly, pirtobrutinib is our non-covalent BTK inhibitor and has been a drug that has shown efficacy in this setting. Here, you see patients who um, basically, these are highly uh, s- selected patients for being high risk. I mean, these are all BTKI exposed and uh, BTKI failed, and uh, we see that the overall response rate of 82%. CR rates are in, in uh, not, not high, but that's what we expect from BTK inhibitors. So this is really a, an important class or important drug that hopefully we'll have for CLL. It's currently not approved for CLL. And also for Richter's transformation, just one slide. I mean, Richter's transformation is a true unmet need, and in this study, they reported a, a response rate of around uh, 50% with a CR rate of 13% in patients with directorial transformation. So peer2brutinib will be an important drug for us, for CLL when approved in at least in the setting of post-covalent uh, BTK inhibitor and venetoclax. And uh, in general, and I end by just uh, kind of summarizing that BTK inhibitor and venetoclax are of course effective treatment strategies for us. With DEL17P abnormal and P53 mutated seems to be an agreement that BTK inhibitor therapy continuously is preferred over venetoclax-based fixed-duration therapy. Combination seems to be the future. There are many studies, and we'll, at some point, we'll decide what combination and with what endpoint will be the standard, but there are many studies. I'm going to, to kind of investigate that, and there is an unmet need for double-failure setting patients who don't have, uh, don't, don't, are post-BTK inhibitor and post-venetoclax and we really need to come up with treatment strategies for these patients. With that, I think I will have Dr. Rydell continue on cell therapy.
1: All right, good morning. Um, So we'll jump into the uh, cell therapy section here. So I'll also start with a case. Um, So in this case, Heather is a 68-year-old patient recently diagnosed with symptomatic CLL. Um, In terms of her risk profile, she's found to have an unmutated IGHV along with a 17P deletion. And so, as or maybe a, a typical treatment paradigm, she's initially started on acalabrutinib as first-line therapy. With that, she does respond and enjoys, uh, you know, interval of approximately four years on therapy. Uh, in the second-line setting, after having progressive disease, she's then moved on into treatment with venetoclax-based regimen. Um, this is likely based on the Murano data, which is six months of rituximab and two years of venetoclax. Um, after the two years of venetoclax, unfortunately, though, she has progression about 15 months after concluding therapy. Next, she's moved on into our other FDA-approved class of agents, including PI3 kinase inhibitors. But as mentioned, uh, response rates are um, leave something to be desired in this class, and along with the side effect profile, it may not be the preferred treatment for every patient. At this point in time, she still has a preserved performance status, and so this brings up a number of questions. Um, the first being is, is this patient classified as double refractory? Um, and I'll get into really what that definition means uh, in the upcoming slides. Um, but considering that, you know, what are the options for this patient at this point in time, having now failed a BTK inhibitor, having failed a BCL2 inhibitor, and not responding to a PA3 kinase inhibitor? Um, we are, in the upcoming slides, going to show some data uh, regarding the efficacy and, and to to support the utilization of CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, additionally, there is data as well to support the utilization of hematopoietic stem cell transplant, of course, our original cellular therapy. And then what about uh, the use of venetoclax retreatment? Um, and so, you know, in this, in this setting, as mentioned, there's very few options in those patients that have failed our typical treatment paradigm. Um, And considering these other uh, treatments such as CAR T-cell therapy, and then Dr. Shudman had mentioned um, perturbrutinib as a non-covalent BTKI, um, if and when that becomes available would be options. Uh, We'll go through some of the data in terms of hematopoietic stem cell transplants, although the field is really moving away from the use of that treatment, just based on the efficacy and, and encouraging safety profile of some of our more targeted therapies. And then lastly, when we think about utilizing venetoclax again in a patient that has previously seen venetoclax, really at this point, the data is is very unclear. Um, and, and some of that is related to how we determine and, and establish that, that patients have been a venetoclax failure. At what point in time after concluding venetoclax and having relapsed disease do we think it's reasonable to Rechallenge or not rechallenge that patient. And, and that's an area where we still need some more data. I think this also brings up some other questions in terms of if we're thinking about moving such a patient into an advanced cellular therapy option like CAR-T, how does that actually happen? And at what point in time would it be maybe appropriate for a clinician to refer a patient for a CAR-T cell consult? And much like with CAR T-cell therapy in ALL, or CAR T-cell therapy in large-cell lymphoma, sort of operationalizing CAR T-cell therapy in these patients can take some time. Um, Obviously, there's the initial consultation, there's the insurance approval, there's getting the apheresis slot, and so forth. And so all of those different pieces of the puzzle do take time to orchestrate. And especially in patients with high-risk disease, The disease isn't always waiting for us to accomplish all those different steps. Um, And so this really brings up the point of referring patients that are high risk at the time of failure of first-line treatment would be a strong consideration. Um, And that would allow, of course, the patient to have some familiarity with what CAR T-cell therapy is, to meet the clinician, to understand this treatment approach a little bit better, um, which of course will pay dividends in the future should that therapy be needed. Um, when we think about uh, CLL and CAR T cell therapy in this disease, um, there are some differences compared to the utilization of CAR T in other diseases like B cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma and even ALL. Um, we are seeing slightly different profile in terms of cytokine release syndrome. We are seeing slightly more uh, incidents of other toxicities such as HLH. Um, and you know, in the modern era, these things are obviously something to consider. But I would also argue that really. In general, as we've been now treating patients with car T therapy since 2017, we've been better at actually managing toxicity in patients. We've been better at recognizing when the toxicity is happening um, and then implementing therapies in many instances a little bit more aggressively and a little bit earlier, uh, potentially mitigating some of those more serious and severe grades of toxicity. And so I think this is an area where we'll actually continue to see improvements in the toxicity profile. So, when we go through just double refractory, um, this is a proposed definition of what double refractory CLL is. Um, And and I would caveat this with the definition of double refractory has not been standardized. This is not a definition that is necessarily being utilized in all upcoming clinical trials and and something that is uniform. Um, And so, there's still some work to be done to really uh, get a clear definition of what double refractory means, but I think this slide does a nice job of kind of walking through the different permutations which may eventually lead to a patient being double refractory. So if we start on the left of the figure here, patient that was treated with a BTK inhibitor with or without a CD20 monoclonal antibody, if that patient were to have progression on therapy, then receive treatment with a venetoclax and rituximab for the Murano data, in the second line setting, and then to have progression within two years of concluding therapy, then that patient would be classified as double refractory. Similarly, if the patient initiated first line therapy with a venetoclax and a CD20-based therapy, had progression and then moved on to an BTK inhibitor, had progression on that, then of course, that would also be constituting double refractory. Um, And then we look on the the right side of that curve, patients had early progression after venetoclax, and then were treated with venetoclax without a BTK, and then had early progression um, within 12 months or on to therapy, that would also be uh, classified as a double refractory patient. Um, I should mention, when we think about uh, refractoriness to venetoclax, that's generally a rare event while patients are receiving therapy. And if we look at the data from CLL14, there was actually only one patient that was refractory to treatment while undergoing therapy. And then the Murano data uh, noted 10 patients that were actually refractory um, on that study. And so this isn't something that's extremely common, but certainly as we're using these therapies more often in clinical practice, this is likely going to become a more prominent event. And then lastly, if we look at the right-hand side of the slide, Utilizing a combo treatment in the frontline setting with a BTK inhibitor and venetoclax as more of a time-limited therapy, um, progression um, could be—I'm or sorry, a double refractory patient could be um, amounted to by having progression on therapy, progression within 24 months of discontinuing, or if there's any evidence of primary or secondary resistance to that therapy. And so now we'll switch gears a little bit to just looking at our original cell therapy, allogeneic stem cell transplant. And so obviously, I think we have the most data um, longitudinally with transplants in our CLL population. This study is uh, specifically looking at the use of transplants in patients with 17p abnormalities. And we can see here that three-year progression-free survival of 37%, overall survival of 44%, But of course, this is matched by a higher incidence of non-relapse mortality. And so that would certainly um, mean that utilizing this type of treatment needs to be implemented in select patients, which may have a more favorable uh, morbidity profile in terms of comorbidities where, where they'd be able to withstand the potential toxicities of such a therapeutic option. Next question that sort of is, is brought about when we're thinking about the utilization of allogeneic stem cell transplants in a population of patients that are receiving novel therapies is, 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 is that a safe approach? And do we have data to substantiate the use of transplanted patients that previously were treated with these novel agents? Um, and this is a study from the group at Memorial Sloan Kettering that, that looked at that question. And really what they were able to show is that use of prior novel agents does not appear to affect the safety of allogeneic stem cell transplants. And and I would argue that, you know, largely getting a patient into a response to permit transplant is is certainly really the goal here. And as long as those patients, um, you know, are, are able to achieve that, that we shouldn't see increased levels of toxicity when we move into the stem cell transplant phase of treatment. And this also bears out in the NCCN guidelines. Um, This is looking at the management of patients with CLL without the presence of a 17P or P53 abnormality. Um, And we can see here, if we focus on the box on the right, in those patients that do have failure to a BTK inhibitor, along with venetoclax-based therapy and have relapsed refractory disease and require treatment, that allogeneic stem cell transplants is still a consideration But of course, when we consider the population of patients that typically have CLL, generally older than age 70, um, those patients can obviously have uh, many medical comorbidities that make allogeneic stem cell transplants risky or associated with high non-relapse mortality. And so really need to appropriately select candidates for that therapy. And that's sort of now, you know, borne out in guidelines. So we have the EBMT, uh, you know, assessment of the role of transplants, in CLL in the modern era. Um, And so there's really two categories that they've come up with. Um, So CLL high-risk one would be those patients which are resistant to chemoimmunotherapy or may not have actually seen chemoimmunotherapy. Um, They're sensitive to novel therapies like BTK and venetoclax, and they may have a 17P abnormality. So in those patients, utilization of stem cell transplant is a consideration but really it's for highly selected patients, those patients which have low comorbidities and essentially low procedural related risk um, and and may not suffer from uh, non-relapse mortality. Alternatively, if we look at those patients in CLL high risk two, those patients are resistant to chemoimmunotherapy and additionally are now resistant to some of our novel agents, independent or agnostic of whether they harbor P53 abnormalities or not. And in this population, considering something like allogeneic stem cell transplant is a much stronger consideration as these patients uh, essentially have very limited therapeutic options outside of uh, therapies that we'll discuss, including non-covalent BTKI and CAR T-cell therapy. So now we'll shift our attention to just looking at uh, CAR T-cell therapy in CLL. And as many of us are very familiar with, um, CAR T-cell therapy in in terms of the the process, is very akin to how we uh, manufacture and use this therapy in other FDA-approved diseases. And so, similar to uh, prior instances, we are uh, doing a steady-state apheresis in patients and collecting their peripheral blood mononuclear cells. Then those are typically shipped off to a manufacturer. In some settings, a manufactured on site. Um, Furthermore, the T cells will be isolated and then uh, eventually, transduced with a retroviral or lentiviral vector, which leads to essentially the expression of this CAR construct on the surface of the CAR T cells. Following further expansion, those cells are then uh, shipped back to the treating center, and the patients are conditioned with typically cyclophosphamide and fludarabine-based conditioning therapy, followed by the stem cell, or the CAR T cell infusion, rather. So now we'll talk about the CLL-004 uh, TRANSCEND trial. This is the first multi-center uh, clinical trial utilizing CAR T-cell therapy in CLL. Um, this has now been presented a few different instances at uh, various ASH Congresses. Um, so we can see here, this is, a, a I would say, a very, relatively familiar workflow in terms of utilizing CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, patients undergo uh, enrollment in leukapheresis. During the time of product manufacture, there is the uh, option of bridging therapy in order to temporize the patient's disease. Upon confirmation of uh, the product being available and the disease being confirmed, the patients then move on to lymphodepleting chemotherapy, followed by the cyclopho- followed by the lysocell infusion. Um, in this trial, patients with relapsed refractory CLL were eligible, including those that had failed or were ineligible for a BTK inhibitor and an eligibility was defined as those that required therapeutic anticoagulation or had a history of arrhythmia. Um, additionally, they uh, permitted patients with either high-risk disease or standard-risk disease to enroll in the study depending on their cytogenetic risk profile. In this uh, study, we actually noted very high overall response rates of 82%, including approximately 45% of patients that achieved a complete response. Additionally, we note very deep responses in terms of MRD, and this MRD was assessed through a flow-based approach with 10 to the minus four sensitivity. We can see here that approximately 75 and 65% of patients respectively had undetectable MRD in the blood and in the bone marrow. Looking a little bit further at the uh, duration of response, which I'll focus on on the left side of the figure here, we can see that among those 18 patients treated in the total group, that we see pretty impressive duration of responses, and and really uh, largely after the 12-month mark, we're not seeing a substantial drop uh, in in patients' response. Um, This slide further delves into looking at uh, the progression-free survival of patients treated on study. And in this study, they actually specifically broke out those patients that were previously exposed to a BTK inhibitor and failed, along with those that had failed venetoclax. Um, And they defined venetoclax failure in this study as progression on venetoclax, failure to respond to venetoclax after three months in therapy, or intolerance of venetoclax. And again, we can see relatively similar progression-free survival in patients. Uh, here, the median PFS was 13 months for the double-exposed or refractory population and 18 months for the total population. Um, this slide looks at the safety data of the CLL-004 trial. And I think really the important thing to note is you know we're still seeing the principal toxicities of CAR T-cell therapy in this study, uh, cytokine release syndrome and neurologic toxicity. But if actually we overlay the results of this study with some of the data from the Transcend NHL trial, we can actually see where there are differences. Um, we're seeing a little bit higher incidence and severity of both CRS and neurologic toxicity. In this study, they're seeing CRS incidence of about 74%. It was closer to about 40%. In the BNHL studies, uh, neurologic toxicity, similar, about 39% in this study, close to 30% in, uh, in the NHL studies. But importantly, the time to onset of CRS and the duration of that, along with neurologic toxicity, do seem to be a little bit earlier and last a little bit longer compared to what we noted in those prior trials. Again, this may be influenced a little bit by the time point at which these trials were implemented as now we're a little bit more aggressive with some of our toxicity management. Um, Moving forward, we do know that based on a a press release, and this was at the end of January, that the uh, Transcend CLL-004 study did meet its primary endpoint of complete response rate in uh, patients with relapsed refractory CLL, and that's when comparing that, uh, the population of the patients which were quote, double refractory, to those patients historically and how they did uh, after failing those therapies. Um, And and this is something that we certainly eagerly await the more mature data, which is likely going to come at upcoming Congress presentations uh, and in manuscript form. We also know that the use of uh, CAR T cell therapy has been very effective. But of course, this begs the question of how can we potentially improve upon this therapy? And one of the ways that was, was looked at was incorporating a BTK inhibitor in the treatment paradigm of CLL, uh, CAR-T therapy. Um, and, and I would say a lot of this data is really born out of the experience at Penn, where they uh, treated patients with CAR-T cell therapy that had previous BTK exposure, and in that they actually saw some pretty promising outcomes in that population of patients that had basically received and, and were aferenced while on BTK inhibitor. Um, and I think specifically here, if we look at the uh, results of this study, which is a smaller study done out of Fred Hutch, we can see really encouraging uh, PFS curves in terms of those that have achieved both a complete and a partial response. And then even going on to the right, if we look at undetectable MRD in the bone marrow, for those patients that are uh, undetectable MRD, they have a, right now an excellent progression-free survival. Um, this was also recapitulated in the Juno CLL trial where they also had a separate arm looking at lysocell in combination with brutinib, Again, 95% overall response rates here and very high levels of undetectable MRD uh, with a high level of concordance between the bone marrow and the peripheral blood close to 86%. When we think about using uh, you know, these cellular therapies, I think it's also important for us to understand how car T cell therapy may pair with and complement something like allogeneic stem cell transplant. And I would say, you know, in the modern era, the use of stem cell transplantation is very akin to how we use it in non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, You know, in those diseases, typically stem cell transplant is utilized in patients that fail CAR T cell therapy and may achieve a remission with a subsequent line of therapy. And then we're using the uh, stem cell transplant in order to consolidate that remission. Um, And that's a similar practice pattern with how we would approach patients that had failed CAR T cell therapy in this disease. Also, we want to look at uh, the experience with allogeneic stem cell transplant and Richter's transformation. And this is a a slide that um, elaborates on data from five different studies. But if we focus at least on the more modern studies, which are the four lower studies, we can see that with uh, allogeneic stem cell transplant and Richter's, we're seeing pretty high rates of uh, progression-free survival, close to 40 to 60% in these trials. But of course, that is matched by non relapse mortality, which can range up to 40% in these patients. And so, again, it, it does uh, emphasize the fact that uh, closely picking patients is, is really important to reduce, essentially, those risks. Um, this slide looks at the use of car T cell therapy in patients with Richter's transformation. This is a small series out of Ohio State that looked at tra- managing patients with AxiCell in Richter transformation. And of the eight evaluable patients with a median follow-up of six months, all patients responded. Um, Unfortunately, one patient did eventually progress, but this does appear to be a promising option in patients with Richter's transformation. And so this brings me to my take-home points. Um, Evidence to date would certainly suggest that CAR T-cell therapy can and should be considered for patients with high-risk disease, uh, specifically those patients with double refractory CLL, those patients that may harbor higher-risk features such as uh, p53 abnormalities, complex cytogenetics, and so forth. I think it's important to plan referral for CAR T-cell therapy early in the treatment process, certainly at the initiation of second-line therapy, but potentially even in select cases at the time of diagnosis. Um, So far, we have many clinical trials which are exploring the role of CAR T-cell therapy in CLL, and hopefully with uh, continued time, we'll have more mature data, which really substantiates the role of this therapy in that disease. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test
0: for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash AEQ 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from AstraZeneca and Bristol-Myers Squibb.